News. New York City. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. Thursday, we interviewed his honor, Bill de Blasio, at Gracie Mansion. He had a lot to say, and you'll hear it all. But first, Ozzie Pabra, Professor Christina Greer, producer Alex Brooklyn, and me, Handsome Harry Siegel, sat down to pregame and set the scene. New York City's Democratic Mayor Bill de Blasio has wanted to see his party take control of the state government for years. If that happens, he could get a lot of his programs through and create a lasting legacy in the city. In 2014, de Blasio rallied hard to help push the state Senate blue, but that plan backfired spectacularly. There were two criminal investigations opened up on de Blasio's tactics while he had fundraised for a handful of Democrats. He was eventually cleared of any wrongdoing, but just barely. The guy still has legal bills to pay off somehow. Upstate Republicans ran a bunch of anti-de Blasio ads. Democrats began to distance themselves from him. But that was then, and this is now. Today, the Democratic Party is looking at a stellar year across the board. And de Blasio might finally get his wish. A blue Senate wish. And his legacy legislation might finally pass. This year, he's playing it real cool. He is very slow to roll out endorsements in state Senate races and more likely to travel to Iowa than upstate with an eye for the national stage. Also, because of the 2014 mess, some Democrats like John Liu don't want his endorsement. Either way, de Blasio might get everything he's wanted for the last four years. One could see de Blasio like Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther movies, bumbling his way into good fortune. Or like Hannibal, the cigar-chomping leader of the A-Team, who loves it when a plan comes together. I love it when a plan comes together. I love it. I love it when a plan comes together. So Americans like divided government. Somehow Trump is elected. de Blasio's still mayor. He may just get this pendulum swing back to a democratic, con- democratically controlled Albany, where all of a sudden he wakes up one morning and can actually get everything that he wants passed. But what happens then? Right. Will he ever be happy? And we don't know whether or not this mayor will actually be able to negotiate this statewide versus citywide list of demands. So so to sort of recap, like the 2010 to 2014, like the early like that early period, there was uh, dysfunction in state government. And Cuomo comes in saying he's going to be effective, not progressive. Right. Like that's his sort of like mandate. Well, it came in kind of like, I'm going to bust up unions. And Cuomo planned to do that by having like an independent group funded by real estate and other business interests right. to sort of have a campaign like apparatus after the campaign that can fund ads and things like that. Because he thought unions were going to run ads against him and he wanted right. to, to do that. But, 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 in, but by 2014, so upstate Republicans heard and saw de Blasio trying to help Senate Democrats. He gets investigated. So upstate Republicans ran ads to their voters saying, look at this progressive New York City Democrat named Bill de Blasio. And they said, if you want New York City to have even more control over state government, look out. And it like scared the shit out of voters. This is Bill de Blasio under investigation for a pay to play money laundering scheme. Boken de Blasio, the corruption team. The corruption. The corruption. The corruption. I love it. I love it when a plan comes together. And if you want to stop that New York City Democrat from taking over even more, vote for me. That that was largely their ad. That was largely their pitch to voters. That's a solid negative ad voice. I have a second career. <laughs> this year, while de Blasio is staying way back from the races, he's not getting involved. He's not throwing money. He's hoping 
There's this anti-Trump resistance and the tide is rising. It'll just happen with him holding back. He's not that helpful, I think, in a lot of places when when he steps in, you know, like I was saying, he's he's the equivalent of a New York Times endorsement. <laughs> it's like you think you want it. And then when you get it, you realize you're not going to win because you got it. Right. But, but I feel like let's back up just a little bit. We keep having this conversation about de Blasio and the person that we don't bring up enough, Michael Bloomberg. And I just feel like Michael Bloomberg is in the shadow of this entire administration because for 12 years, everyone was just on pause. Like the media couldn't really do anything and didn't really say a lot of things because Michael Bloomberg is not just a billionaire, which I think gives you a certain cachet across the state and across the world. But he's a media billionaire. So I just feel like people didn't flex on him the way they do on de Blasio. Who did Bloomberg support in Albany? Senate Republicans. Right. Well, he was a Republican. His days of being a Medford Democrat are long gone. Whether he feels it in his heart, I don't care. That's like the question about, you know, LBJ. You know, was LBJ racist? I don't know. Like, he signed the legislation. That's all I care about. Michael Bloomberg, 12 years as mayor, was one of the largest, if not the largest, financial backers of Senate Republicans. Cynthia Nixon, running against Andrew Cuomo for governor as the more progressive alternative in that race, largely is criticizing him for the existence of the IDC. Didn't she say she wouldn't be running for governor if Michael Bloomberg was governor? How do you close that loop? Am I missing something? I think the shortcut, now granted, I don't know what Cynthia Nixon's thinking, but if I had to speculate, I think it might be an efficiency argument. If Michael Bloomberg were governor, I wouldn't run because Albany would be so efficient. It's like, oh, you know, the Disneyfication of New York City is under Bloomberg's watch. And so a lot of people are happy about that. And so there's a level of efficiency that he gets tagged with. New York did right on gay marriage with a real push from Cuomo because Bloomberg bribed specific individual members of the state Senate to pass it, both by aiding their campaigns at the time and by promising people jobs in Bloomberg world Mm -hmm. uh, thereafter. That's one very good result we got to through his inverted corruption scheme. Bloomberg left de Blasio holding the bag on a lot of things. And so much of de Blasio's first tenure was responding to things that Bloomberg had set in motion. I mean, he's responding to, to, to real estate and money and development and Bloomberg well, and con- form of conduits. But, but hold on. Uh, but de Blasio's also been incredibly full of shit about a lot of this. So I'll use as an interesting example the stop and frisk debate, which is a proxy for a larger debate about policing, where I think he's actually, de Blasio, behaved very admirably. But stop and frisk was the issue in 2013 and in that race. And as John Liu noted, Liu had a much more aggressive reform position, but de Blasio had one then. And what none of these Democrats mentioned was that in the third term, it was actually Bloomberg and Kelly who undid their own stop and frisk policy and brought those numbers plummeting down. Now, that was political pressure from Democrats, including de Blasio, that played into that. But uh, it it was something that actually preceded their being there. And if you look at some of the other issues where de Blasio has been full of it, for his whole first term, de Blasio held on to the idea that he would never let private developers touch NYCHA uh, property, the public housing authority. Bloomberg had this plan. We're going to take this underused land and parking lots. And we'll let private developers build things up, and that'll get money because the federal government won't put money in anymore. And that's long been true, and that goes back to de Blasio's mid-toward Dinkins, objecting to the lack of cash coming in from D.C. Now, in year five, he's like, yeah, you know what? I have my own plan. And if you squint just a little bit, it's exactly Bloomberg's plan that he's resisted for five years because the money isn't there otherwise. So this city has always been run by real estate. Well, think about Spitzer. (laughs) I mean, like, this city is nothing. You remember last week we said, you know, New York State is prisons and yogurt. 
You know, New York City is nothing but real estate, period. Scratch any politician and you're going to find some sort of real estate shenanigans. For those who don't know, what Spitz are doing now? Well, he's running his dad's real estate empire, right? It's still an empire. I mean, well, I mean, yeah. Well, it's, well, I mean, that's why I think it's so fascinating. It's like, you know, Trump, Papa Trump and Papa Spitzer, you know, like Trump's dad could never break into the Manhattan market the way the Spitzers had it. Trump has always been this Queens boy looking across, you know, the bridge at all these fancy, shiny buildings that his dad was never able to break into. He's like some, you know, rando in, in Queens that's doing very well for himself. But I mean, I think even at the heart of our national politics and still in our city politics, we're talking about real estate constantly. Real estate is incredibly powerful for a couple of reasons. One is just visually, it literally creates a skyline. And and that symbolic, uh, that symbolism is hard to understate. And secondly, it's a continuing revenue source. As anyone who pays rent every month, you hand over a pretty painful, heavy check, except, except Alex Brooklyn for unknown reasons. You could see why real estate becomes like a power center. And look, they're called landlords for a reason. Like this stuff is straight up feudal. And the land here is tremendously valuable. There isn't enough of it to go around. And it's a world commodity at this point. And de Blasio, to his real credit in some circles and creating fury in others, just froze the rents for everyone who's rent stabilized, which is a big share of the people who live in apartments here. And that's supposed to be like a formula based on like the price for landlords and all this other stuff. And he pretty much just said, nah, putting a thumb on the scale. When he came in, we're going to have no increase for one year and barely any for two. And it sort of kept that going. And it's one of his attempts to shift the balance as the rent has in fact gotten, and under uh, Bloomberg's watch, too damn high to support a full and healthy city. If the Democrats take and hold the state Senate, some big things that he's asked for that we know about are going to be on the table. Right, like a millionaire's tax, like extended mayoral control of the schools, like speed cameras. But there are other things that we're not even thinking about yet because he is a cautious politician and already a stakeholder. So he's not – yeah, de Blasio is not Ocasio-Cortez. When you're just running for office, you say whatever. I've worked for candidates. I've seen it happen. I've written their, their, their nonsense policy papers. Like say, say, say whatever, and then if you win, you know, you figure out what you can actually do. And de Blasio, who is a mayor, not a lawmaker – is looking at Albany and saying, this could all change, and things I've dreamed about and talked about will happen, and things I've dreamed about and kept to myself. And that's what I want to know, is uh, what, what else that we're not even thinking about suddenly becomes possible politically. And I'm guessing some of this might have to do with rent stabilization, rent control, and, um, and, and really stripping away a lot of what the private market has been in New York and where the money has been to the best of his abilities. And if he does that, he's also going directly at Cuomo's funders. New Yorkers, please direct your eyes to the screens. The screens. Screen, screens. Mayor Bill de Blasio. Mayor Bill de Blasio. F-A-Q. Mayor Bill de Blasio. Thanks for having us. Yeah. It's a pleasure to have you. We'll see if that holds true. I like, no, I, I'm, <laughs> I know it's a pleasure already because you're doing something different with media structure. So I'm like, I'm there already. You had me at hello. <laughs> I'm like, I'm voting in favor. I'll take your questions. I'm not scared. Oh. Why is the media structure so bad? I mean, you've said it's the corporate thing, but, you know, I look at, like, ProPublic and other stuff. I don't know. The news is a disaster. Why is it so bad? Okay, I think there's more than one thing going on. The first thing I have been talking about is, borrowing from Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the others. And uh, News Corp, Fox, New York Post, they are not like the rest of the American media, period. I'll defend that anyway. Anyone who wants to come, I mean, they're not even like Sinclair. They're just, they're profoundly different. They're 
right-wing, propagandistic, strategic, brilliantly strategic, incessant, with no boundary between editorial side and reporting side. And that includes their city hall bureau chief and the other of more course. credible reporters there? Yes, yes. And, and it includes Fox's work nationally, and it includes a whole host. Of, now, to be fair, Wall Street Journal is probably the exception that proves the rule in the News Corp empire, but Daily Mail, I mean, there's plenty of examples of a continuity of political philosophy and uh, propagandistic application of it, which is not true of the Times or the News or the Journal, to be fair, or ABC or CBS or NBC or, you know, a whole host of other outlets. So I think the, the thing I talk about there is I can't stay silent about uh, a corporation that created in large measure the modern political environment. I have said it very clearly, there's no Donald Trump in my view as President of the United States without News Corp. Uh, what's happening to the media, the horrible threats against members of the media, goes back in my view to the work of News Corp over decades to create a negative environment. You're mingling the, the local and the national though. Sure. So, so with the Post and their coverage here, their city hall desk, yeah. their editorial desk, yeah, all yeah, that yeah, is yeah. disqualified in your view? I'm saying they're all part of the continuum of what I've seen from News Corp over decades in this city going, in my experience, back to the 1980s. Uh, but that's one piece of what I'm saying. The other piece of what I'm saying is um, that the reality we just saw recently with the Daily News, and I have my differences with the Daily News, for sure, but uh, the Daily News is not the New York Post. And the Daily News, over generations, uh, provided a crucial vantage point on uh, working-class New York, and I honestly believe some of that slipped in recent years, but it still was, uh, was and is an important outlet. To see a corporate owner decimate the news staff of the Daily News is bad for New York City. And so there I make the point, we need local owners who care about their cities and care about their states to to purchase these papers and let them actually focus on capable news coverage rather than just profit-making. And we need more alternatives such as your own. But is there a role for government to play in this, or is the fundamental nature of media and reporting make it something that you actually don't want government to be supporting it to a great deal? You can obviously do something about the taxi industry, construction jobs. You can do all sorts of things for the manufacturing industry. Do, is, is there a role for you as mayor, sure. the governor, to, to step in and, and support? Because there's been Facebook and Google arguably have just as deleterious role in what's happening to media. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's a direct financial support to existing uh, businesses. I don't think that's sensible. I do think support for public media. Uh, you should not disqualify the notion that you could have publicly supported media and it can be objective and it can provide a public service. You could also look at the model that has been used in some countries in Western Europe of numerous stations with uh, overt different perspectives that are publicly supported, but it's understood that they're different perspectives. And in fact, the idea is to compete in a positive manner and bring out the different perspectives, but not be beholden um, to an ownership that is trying to achieve a certain agenda. I, I look, we, we need more independent media I, of every kind. I think, uh, you know, more subscriber-based like The Guardian. You know, I think more uh, media that's community-based. The, we've got to reimagine the model. And yes, government can play, play a role. I don't think government's the whole answer, but I think government can play a role. 
So what do you say to some of your detractors, and I would even argue some of your supporters, who think you're becoming a little Trumpian in your relationship with the media? facile and simplistic uh, to see that. And um, even... uh, Brian, when he interviewed me on CNN the other day, he had previously tweeted that, you know, if anyone can't see the difference between what I'm saying and what Trump's saying, they're not trying very hard, you know. Uh, they're entirely different worldviews. My worldview goes back decades, and particularly around News Corp, is based on real experience, especially here in the city. And I can give you many a story from the Dinkins years in particular, but also watching the impact nationally. And I think it needs to be made clear what the impact of News Corp has been, and it needs to be analyzed and needs to be confronted while still respecting the fact that, of course, they have the right to exist and their journalists should be protected and their journalists should have every right to ask every question, et cetera. But again, uh, Trumpism to me is directly related to the work of News Corp over decades as a huge... Uh, corporation with an agenda. And if you're a progressive like me, the notion that some corporations have a political agenda and are trying to alter our society in their favor, that's not a new idea to me. That has no resemblance to what Trump is talking about. So moving away from the corporate entity, though, and more into the individual interpersonal interactions, some of the detractors and supporters sort of use that as a basis of the argument, where you you are cherry-picking and selecting how you want to interact with the free press at times. I, I don't agree with that because of just the record. I mean, I just came from a press conference, and I took <laughs> questions from a whole bunch of people, some who I knew were well-disposed to me, some who were not well-disposed to me, and we asked, you know, I took them equally. And I take uh, questions from uh, not just journalists, but whoever the heck calls in New York City every Friday morning. And, you know, I take questions. I've had 55 town hall meetings, and the media is there to watch every single human being with every single issue come up and ask their question. It's a thoroughly open environment. And I don't agree with the New York Post, but I'll take their questions consistently. I mean, it could not be more night and day. And by the way, I think saying things like the, the president has said, calling the media enemies of people is not only uh, irresponsible, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to our society. But at the same time, the, it's facile to say, okay, therefore we should not have any critique of the media at all, including if there's a media outlet that literally is not observing the norms that almost everyone else observes. For example, providing both sides of the story, you know, some sense of equal time, uh, separation of the editorial side and the reporting side. Uh, the vast majority of outlets honor those concepts. And and when that was the norm in American journalism, it's not surprising that we were a more uh, respectful society. When was that? When did that exist? So when I was coming up in the 1960s into the 1970s, and I don't want to... Look, this, the irony here is I don't want to create like this um, uh, glossy sort of sense of this nostalgic perfect time I grew up in. But I am very um, uh, moved by the experience I grew up with. The, the mainstream media uncovered the, the lies related to the Vietnam War. The mainstream media uh, uncovered Watergate. And uh, figures of tremendous respect and moderation and balance um, maintained a sense of civility throughout all of it, and that helped, I think, to create a civil culture in the nation. Uh, and I think the tonality matters. I think when it went from um, a sense of you had to hear both sides, 
and um, that civility mattered in the presentation of the news to the sort of free-for-all created primarily, I believe, by News Corp, but obviously, you know, connected to right-wing, you know, uh, morning radio and one thing or another. There's an obvious correlation between the media culture and our political culture. And I'm only saying, I'm not, the 60s and 70s were hardly a calm time, but, but the leadership provided by the media sector unquestionably improved the civic discourse in the country. Because it was corporate and the barrier to entry was much, much higher, I would argue. Um, but I would like to ask you one thing. I, 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 the, interesting yeah, point, but I just want to challenge you. I would, uh, media consolidation, I would argue, is greater today. But, but go ahead. So, so the Daily News, which has the same editorial board that it did under uh, the previous local owner, they were one of the 200 papers today that wrote about Trump and right. his threat to the press. And in the course of doing that, they, they took time to, uh, to mention you and also to mention uh, Governor Cuomo, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, uh, Mayor de Blasio has wished for the demise of a competitor tabloid. He's relished the financial troubles of this paper and lashed out uh, with language this close to fake news. And they modulate. Uh, their sins... Uh, yours and, and the governor's do not compare to Trump's, but this is the behavior the president has helped to normalize. This is the country's molding in his, in his image. This is the angry ignorance we must all stand against. You know, I'd love to have your response. Uh, yeah, to I just wish people could think past the last uh, two years. It's just ahistorical. And I, again, guys, I'm not going to coddle you. Yeah. And, you know, don't let's let's act like there's some actual intelligence in this discussion, not this one, but the bigger public one. You can um, pretend there's intelligence in this one. Yeah, I've been saying... First of all, and I give, again, Brian credit the other day on CNN, I said, I've been saying this stuff since the 1980s, not that anyone knew me or cared, but I've been saying it. So it's like, one, all of this concept of the meeting of News Corp, for example, uh, and concerns of a certain type of corporatization of the media is not not because of Donald Trump. And um, what I've also said about the tabloid culture is very, it's obviously, first and foremost, the post, but it's rooted in the divisive nature of sensationalized journalism and the Post's use of race incessantly as a tool to divide, uh, which, again, uh, if you want to go down the greatest hits of the 1980s alone, uh, and, and uh, you know, you, everything related to Mayor Dinkins, uh, the Central Park Five, I mean, I could go on and on and on, aggressive use of race to create division as part of a very systematic uh, vision, uh, that's not something to give a pass, and it has nothing to do with Donald Trump that a lot of us were ready to renounce that and and call it out. Now, I do think it's related to how Donald Trump gained the presidency, and I think that should be analyzed, and we should think about how we don't let, as a Democrat, as a progressive, how we don't let it happen again. But also, if we want to heal our society, how we're going to stand up to that kind of negative sensationalization. I think that's a great segue to go... My goal is to provide great segues. That, that's great. You know? <laughs> there goes, you know, segues and conversations and traffic, everything's, yeah. everything in the city's going to be fine. You had previously had an interview with Harry, and you, I think it was in 2016, but you were talking about 2014. You were talking about the role of Democrats. And I think in, in, in that interview, you had said New York could potentially flip the state Senate and New York could sort of model what's happening in California, where Democrats get an opportunity to really run the field and show what a government with their policies really does. This year, there's this rising tide against Trump, but you're sort of not doing as much actively, at least yet, with respect to helping other candidates. Some are even saying that they don't want your endorsement, like John Liu. 
I think there's a state Senate candidate on the North Shore of Staten Island who I think has a better time when he says he works at City Hall rather than saying your name. Can you just like walk I'm in? crushed. I, <laughs> I can tell. We the, can see it. Oh, my God. The, the tears in the podcast. The tears, you can hear the tears falling on the podcast. Can you I, just, I should get some water and drip them on the microphone <laughs> just for effect. Can you? <laughs> the the segment is called Tears in the Podcast. Right. Tears in the Podcast. <laughs> I, need, I, I need some sound effects here. We'll put those in. Yeah. Um, but but can you walk us through what you learned about 2014, and can you and, and can you also just explain to us if if what you're doing in 2018 is strategic, or if you think there there's just not a role that you can actively play at this moment because because of the wave? Yeah, I, I, there's a couple of different points I'll try and say quickly. First of all, I I, I get that uh, the mayor of New York City uh, is a figure who can be effective in some districts promoting an idea, promoting a candidate, and less effective in other districts by definition. That, to begin, I get that a progressive Democrat works some places, doesn't work other places, and I get that I personally work some places and don't work other places. That's fine. That's just political reality. So I don't sweat. I've said a thousand times publicly, if a candidate wants my support and, and they're my fellow Democrat, great. And if they don't, that's cool. I am trying to help support progressives around the country for the House and Senate and, um, and uh, potentially governor's races as well. And uh, I am looking for ways to help uh, win a Democratic majority in the Senate, but I'm only going to do it in a way that Democratic candidates and the Democratic leadership feel good about. And that's fine. I, I'm perfectly comfortable about that. So you've mentioned before that you're from the Ocasio wing of progressives. Well, I have not said those words because okay. that wing would therefore only be a few weeks old. Exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> no, a, it's so, a fledgling. No, but, you know, so progressive wing. The progressive wing, uh, of which Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yes. is a descendant. And if that's the case, would you like to make history of the podcast and endorse the progressive gubernatorial candidate right now. I mean, you haven't yet decided who you're going to right. endorse for governor. Um, so can you talk to us about that as a progressive with a very sure. openly progressive My, in there? And also why you chose not to endorse Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, sure. who's from your wing of the party. So, and we understand strategy. So, you know, yeah, yeah. the thought I mean, process first, behind my the press secretary, process. Eric Phillips, said the most important thing to do is make really big news on the podcast, but I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to follow his advice. Uh, <laughs> no, and you so, can give us your endorsement. He's like, he's like, make all your news today. On this. <laughs> look, I continue. It's about a month out. I continue to look at all the uh, statewide races. And again, I'll speak to each one when I'm ready in each way. On the Senate races, obviously, in a couple of cases already, I have endorsed progressive candidates who happen to be running against Democrats who joined the uh, IDC. And uh, I came to the conclusion that uh, it was the right time to do it. It was the right person to support and that my support would be helpful. I think the mature point is, you know, you've got to figure out in each case, uh, of course, first and foremost, what helps the person. And then you got to think about a lot of different factors. So uh, I will do that as I see fit. I don't think, uh, to take the point about uh, Alexandria, I, I don't think it's ever in just philosophical ice. He was well on his way to a leadership position in the House that would be very good for New York City. Uh, we didn't agree on everything. Many times his party organization had uh, endorsed against me over the years, but I was looking at what I thought was the greater good for New York City. Uh, Alexandria is someone I find you know, very impressive, very hopeful well, what she could do. Now, she's going to have to show it to us over a period of years like all the rest of us, but I am very heartened 
But, uh, you know, I, I want us all to be careful. The progressive wing of the party has existed for time immemorial. And as hold on, there's a phone ringing. That Andy from Albany is calling in, obviously. Yeah, why don't you grab it and tell them, don't call in the middle of the podcast. It's deeply offensive. The <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, phone, like, never rings. It's Fred Dicker, obviously. Well, Stay or we can do, for, like, yeah. my class. You might want to answer and make it go away. rings you have to answer and put it on speaker so we can all hear. <laughs> and so Alexandria, you know, it's sort of, like, understandably has attracted a lot of attention, and now people are making a whole narrative around that. But at the progressive wing of the party has been around for generations in different forms. And what I think is happening now, which I'm thrilled about, is we're sort of coming out of the DLC darkness, uh, and the progressives are ascendant and are the future of the party. And there's a lot of pieces of that, and Bernie's uh, uh, campaign is the single most powerful element, but stuff was going on well before Bernie. And even you know the humble things we've done here in this city have been a contributing uh, piece of the equation. So that's, that's just to say, just to finish it over to you, that to say that I'm very comfortable uh, with the notion that the progressive movement has been building and growing for years and years in many forms, and I'm going to be part of helping it grow in a lot of ways. But I also can say in any individual election, there can be other uh, elements that you have to take into account beyond just ideology, uh, particularly when you're chief executive of a city of 8.6 million people and you've got to take into account what's best for the city as well. I've been sort of torn, and we've talked about this before, if you've been a stop clock or ahead of your time, going <laughs> back to your race in 2013 with where the Democratic Party is going. I wonder two things, what you think the party's message needs to be this year once we move past the primaries nationally, and what you think changes in New York if the Democrats retake and hold the state Senate, and that dream gets achieved, that maybe some of the things you've been speaking about and looking at for a long time that haven't seen possible come into focus? Sure. I think the on the second question, um, we have a chance to start down the road that California has been on um, of, you know, uh, fixing a lot of what's broken. I mean, it comes down to uh, taxing the wealthy uh, in a way that I think causes them to pay their fair share. It comes down to, uh, and I think millionaire's tax, particularly related to the MTA, is one of the most obvious things that could move with a Democratic state Senate that is much harder now. I think it is about um, uh, changing the rent laws so protect literally over 2 million uh, rent-regulated uh, tenants and making them much more aggressive, much less landlord and real estate industry friendly. I think there's a series of things you will see there's someone running for governor suggesting some of that, right? God bless her. But those are the ideological examples on a very pragmatic level, something like speed cameras, which I don't think is an ideological matter, unquestionably would have already been done if there were a Democratic state Senate. So I do th I'm do. i very excited. And I also think that my fundamental belief, you know, New York having been such a thoroughly blue state, New York uh, having a progressive tradition, even though in some ways it's been obscured in recent years, and uh, the Assembly now 107 out of 150 seats Democratic. Once the Senate goes Democratic, ain't going back, is my strong, strong opinion. And then that will lead to a series of changes over years. It's not going to happen in the first session. And, you know, there's going to be tangles with the governor, by definition, who uh, is not used to having uh, a progressive uh, legislature around him. But I'm very hopeful about where it leads because I think it will be structural. 
I think it will be a profound change. Your first part was on the history before. Look, I, all I can say is I, I think uh, from Occupy on, the handwriting was on the wall. Um, that um, progressive uh, economic populism was the way forward. And I, re I claim the word populism. I will not allow, I personally, and a lot of progressives feel the same, we're not going to allow anyone to take the word populism and typify it as some right-wing concept that you see in Hungary. Uh, populism goes back over a century in America as a progressive concept related to talking about economic fairness. So I wanna reclaim our space, reclaim our terminology. There is a progressive populist message uh, rooted in a willingness to take on the 1% and confront the reality of the 1% that is, it goes back literally in American politics to the 19th century that is alive and well, but has been re-energized from occupying to 2011 on. I think my election was in that line. I think a number of other mayoral elections around the country were in that line. Um, I think, you know, Seattle doing the $15 minimum wage was in that line. I mean, there's a lot of pieces that come together that then lead up, but uh, again, I, I, I really respect the way Bernie brought it all together in 2015 and 2016 in a way that most of us could not have imagined. And that was transformative. And, uh, and American politics just can't and won't be the same because of that. And now it's taking on uh, a whole host of other shapes uh, post-Trump via the social movements, which from my point of view have the only parallel is the 1960s and 70s, uh, the, 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 the sort of powerful um, combination of social movements, what's happening with women's marches, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, gun safety, Parkland students, uh, you know, teacher strikes in red states. I mean, all of these pieces connect and suggest that a very different America is coming. And to me, that's tremendously exciting, but I don't have a doubt in my mind that all of this is leading in a certain direction. All those pieces connecting, all of that activism, what is the unifying message that gets that energy to your side of the aisle rather than somebody wearing a Make America Great hat again, sure. and, putting and their arms around it? By the way, I think a lot of the uh, folks who voted Obama, Obama, Trump can be pulled toward that positive message. Which is? It's a progressive economic populist message. It is, it is uh, the incessant power flow to the 1%. I, I don't have the perfect words, but I'm just going to offer you the concepts. The 1% has become too powerful. That must be reversed. The wealthy are not paying their fair share in taxes. They must pay their fair share in taxes. Uh, the money we would get from that would allow us to do a whole host of things that would change lives for everyday Americans. Uh, it certainly would allow us to invest in the country again in the, to the things that people, everyday people want. They want mass transit. They want you know new schools. They want better health care. All of that being connected to the fact that the 1% have to pay their fair share in taxes. Uh, and, and I think in the end, and I've certainly seen it with pre-K as one good example here, people are moved by things that tangibly improve their lives and that reduce their economic burden. I think it's true with paid family leave. I think it's true with paid sick leave. I think there's a suite of things that if that's what progressives and Democrats stand for, it will break through deeply and it will pull uh, the whole range of people, including a number of people who voted for Trump. Yes or no? Is, is, is Andrew Cuomo in that category of, of people who provided that? To be, no. Okay. Yeah. Elizabeth Warren. 
Yeah. Someone you met with yesterday, yeah. earlier this week. Yeah. What did you guys talk about? Oh, I have a transcript for you, Ozzy. <laughs> I, I knew you might ask. Here, just Eric, the transcript, please. Um, the, no, look, we have had a running uh, conversation over the last few years about what it's going to take, the exact question you asked, what it's going to take to build a progressive movement. You should have invited me to the meeting. I should have. Uh, what it's going to take to build a progressive movement. What are the ideas and messages we have to put forward and, to change and, our party? And she came to you to ask you that. Or, it's not to ask okay. me. It's a dialogue okay. we've met a number of times. And uh, the, the conversation, and I think, I think the best way to say it is there is this kinetic conversation going on among American progressives because we, we know it is our moment. We know we have to get it right. And everyone's talking together about the right idea, the right message, uh, and how to build a movement that will have lasting impact. Uh, and I think she's a, obviously a tremendously effective voice and a central part of that. So that's what we talk about. So I just have a quick follow-up because, you know, some people might argue that, you know, there's a quasi-civil war going on within the Democratic Party between the progressives and what I might argue are some neoliberal centrists whose time is passing by. Whose time is passing by. Which segues to me naturally into your relationship with the governor. Yeah. Um, and so how do you see... So these two divergent ideological visions within the same party, I, I how do we move forward in the next uh, few first years? First of all, I don't say this with a, a sort of fake triumphalism or blind triumphalism. I say it because I believe it's factually true. I think it's a, a battle that will be fought without a shot being fired. I think it already happened. I think it happened at the convention in Philadelphia when you know there was no choice. And, and again, deepest respect for Hillary, but there was no choice but for her to except uh, a platform largely written by the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, because that's where the party was. That's where not just the activists, that's where the people were. And that has continued to deepen. The progressive wing has the message, the ideas, the energy, uh, the ability to bring in uh, a lot of new people to the party, the ability to get the people we have to actually show up and vote. It's already done. And I give Chuck Schumer credit. He recognizes it, and the, the platform he put forward from the Senate more recently very deeply uh, acknowledged all that. Look, we as progressives had to, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, accept the leadership of moderates uh, for a period of time, right? I mean, the, they, they were the ascendant wing of the party in the 1990s, and you could have fought it. Uh, or you could have left the party. There's lots of different options, but there was no question they were ascendant, and a lot of progressives said, well, we don't agree with all this, but we're going to work with it. Well, the tables have turned, and so I would argue that it's time for moderates to follow progressives and to get with the program, because this is where things are going. And I don't think that's a, a crazy heavy lift. It's like, one, join the winning team. Two, this is where the people are. If you, if you want to be a part of something that is um, reflective of where the American people increasingly are, get over here. Uh, and if you can't live with that, why were you a Democrat to begin with? It's very tempting. I mean, as I said, Eric Phillips demanded I announce all of my views right here on FAQ, but I'm not doing that. Yeah, I haven't heard the results. I think the, the, the fact is that 
the experience of the Second Avenue subway should teach us everything we need to know about life. Um, new subway lines are going to take a long, long time, which is why it's time to talk about everything else. And I must say, I've evolved some on this issue watching that experience. Um, light rail will be faster. Ferry service, I can guarantee you, is faster because it's sprouting like mushrooms and it's actually working really well and really quickly. Uh, select bus service is faster and really carries a lot of folks. So um, light rail, to me, is, you know, we'll be talking about, again, this a lot more soon, but light rail is a much more realistic option for expansion uh, than the sort of waiting for Godot of let's do lots of new subway lines. But what I think we do have to do is talk about uh, the changing reality of the city. It's not a outer boroughs to Manhattan city anymore. It is more and more, uh, I say as a proud Brooklynite, you can live your whole life in Brooklyn just fine. And there's a whole intra-Brooklyn reality we have to account for more. There's an intra-Queens reality. There's a Queens to Brooklyn reality. There's uh, millions of people whose lives are not uh, as much about Manhattan as they used to be, and our transportation system has to catch up with that. The Uber cap, the Lyft cap is in place. If congestion in Manhattan a year from now looks like congestion today, does that get you closer to congestion pricing, rethinking it? Or First of all, the, the, I'm sorry to interrupt. The, the, sure. the, I don't expect sort of, uh, uh, you know, a, a stunning change in the next year because of a cap, um, which... As you know, there was a, a run-up to it, and a lot of people okay. applied for licenses and one thing. But it's it's just too small a sample size. I do think we're going to have a, a chance to do a systematic study and determine what the size of that industry should be, and that's where I think we have the chance to do something much more foundational. But that the the four higher vehicles are one piece of a much bigger equation. Uh, I, I'm trying to see if we can uh, you know greatly change the way we allow deliveries in the city, and create a lot more restrictions around that. Uh, we've got to do uh, very different things with how we enforce HOV lanes. There's a whole host of things. Congestion pricing, I've said you know, abundantly that this is an area where I'm pleased with something the governor did. His commission came back with an idea I had never seen before. It certainly wasn't in the Bloomberg plan. It wasn't in the Move New York plan to take the bridges out of the equation, which to me as a Brooklynite was a very productive, novel approach. And I said that's actual progress towards something that might work. But what that commission didn't do is come forward with an actual plan. It was, a, it was only a beginning. So, you know, I've spoken about the fairness concerns I have. I don't want to see regressive tax. I do want to see accounting for hardship and, and needs of working people. But I, I'm open in a way that before I didn't feel because I've seen something that I think uh, is certainly more promising than any other previous uh, proposal. You just had some praise for, for Cuomo. Sure. Assuming he wins re-election. How do you mend that relationship or make it work better? Or, or, or literally, is this something that you have to work out as maybe he goes to Iowa and you go to other places? I, I don't. I, I think, first of all, again, historical grounding. Tensions between mayors and governors are age old. Uh, this, in my view, is not the uh, most severe example of that reality. But you guys started as like close friends. Well, yeah, but we started with friends who had real ideological differences and. Uh, but didn't have two jobs that demanded, uh, you know, trying to achieve very different things. Also, it's very pertinent to what we just talked about. We okay. talked about a changing uh, ideological context where, you know, I came into office, number one thing I was fighting for was a tax on the wealthy to achieve pre-K, and he was adamantly against that. 
That certainly affected things. But, but also, I went to the WFP convention in 2014 uh, to a group of progressives and vouched for him because he said he would go and, and work with all he had to achieve a Democratic Senate, state Senate, so we could make a host of other changes. And he didn't do it. Is he doing it this year? Because he said similar things. I don't know. I don't have enough of a vantage point, but I'm not, um, you know, I don't take any wooden nickels. You know, I, I'm like, you know, if it happens. Is that a Bernie Sanders expression? I don't know, <laughs> but it's some, I know it for yeah. a long time. If there's a Democratic state Senate uh, and he can show us the ways that he helped make it happen, then he'll have proof points. But the last time still stings a lot of people because it was, um, it's shocking when a Democrat doesn't stand up for Democrats. And it's shocking in a moment where a group of Democrats defected to the Republican Party, even before Donald Trump, for God's sakes. I mean, Donald Trump comes with a host of particular problems and particularly um, reprehensible stances. But it's not like the Republican Party before Trump was pristine these Democrats defected to the Republicans. He aided and abetted it. So we, I know we have limited time. Yeah. Um, I just, I'm going to throw this out there. Please. Obama had a beer summit. I think you and the governor need to have a Greer summit. Moderated, a Greer summit. A Greer summit. Moderated, That's very not by me, but by my mom. I think she'd get to the bottom of it in about three minutes. Your mom's going to solve this. <laughs> I think she could. I'm just putting that out there. We make news on FAQ. I want to give you credit for an excellent (laughs) turn of a phrase. News, 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 news. Thank you, everyone. It's been a fascinating interview. And and when you leave reviews for podcasts, what name do you use? When a what? Uh, For for, for podcasts. When you go on to iTunes. And you give us our five stars, yeah. I don't do that. F-A-Q. So... (laughs) I would like, uh, starting with you, Harry, to just sing the Pink Panther song, but using specifically Dead Ant. You know, like when you're a child? Dead Ant, Dead Ant, right. Dead Ant. Slower and less gravelly, is that possible? That's my Tom Waits voice. <laughs> you don't need to put on a Tom Waits voice. Dead Ant. What am I serving you for dinner? Dead Ant. <laughs> Chrissy. <laughs> I must have missed the memo on this one. <laughs> this just like this was just an idea that just happened. It's a workaround to the Pink Panther reference. Gotcha. Well, you know, and we'll... there's like a news element. Like, like there's an explanation why we're referencing. Right. Exactly. So it's, so it's not just purely gratuitous. Yeah. It's, it's not just you all are insane. And I'm I mean, just here for the ride. multiple things can be true at the same time. All right. So we're just gonna try it all once. together. Yeah. One, two, three. Dead ant. Dead ant. Perfect. All right. Air horn. You know, you know, I'm always late to the party. I didn't realize GSI Studios is like a big deal. You know, like Questlove records here that the password is Miles Davis, and we we are bringing this place down. You just literally blew up their password. The password was Miles Davis. <laughs> All right. We used to record here. GSI Studios is our recording base for FAQ NYC. And we're funded by Civil, a blockchain company that is rewriting the economics of journalism. Shout out to my brother Jake Siegel. <laughs> oh, yeah. My dad's name is Stephen Lynn, and he's awesome. Myra Katz, you know, Myra Paper is obviously listening. <laughs> and Teddy G is my dad. But but we Bradley love our does dads. Not know how to download it. Well, I said last week I can never be president because I don't have daddy issues. News, 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 news. New York City. F A Q.